Thank you, Joseph. Thank you, uh, everyone. Yeah, Joseph. Uh, yeah, uh, Walter Brueggemann and Jesse Duplantis have both written forwards to my books. That's, that takes it to another level. Because I tell people I've written eight books in the past ten years. That's true. But actually, I've written ten books. The first two I don't claim anymore. So if I could gather them all up and throw them in the sea, I would. But hopefully you, you won't be able to find them. Don't go looking for them. You don't, you don't want them. Uh, yeah, so we're going to talk about Jesus, church. We're going to start with Jesus. Nothing else I'd rather talk about. We'll start with Jesus. And then uh, we'll have a break and a couple more sessions in the day. We'll sort of blend church and hope together because that's how it works for me. They, they kind of overlap one another. But Lord, we ask now that the Holy Spirit would come. The Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Spirit who is the Spirit of love. The Spirit of advocacy. The very Spirit of God. We ask that the Holy Spirit who is the divine energy of grace would come among us and help us to think clearly. Help us to perceive maybe some new ways that we could advance the cause of Christ in the sphere of influence you've committed us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's start off with Jesus. Who, who, well I'm going to use past tense just to start with. Who was Jesus of Nazareth. Who was Jesus of Nazareth? Well, he was, is the Jewish Messiah, the Mashiach, the anointed one, the summation, culmination of all of the hopes and promises of Israel. So as the New Testament begins, the first thing we're told about Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, is that he is the son of David, the seed of Abraham. And so there's this whole long trajectory. We might even think in terms of what happens is that God begins with Abraham, and it's a long, long story. But he begins with Abraham, and then there's the patriarchs, and there's Moses, and there's the prophets. And Israel, uh, they are chosen by God. Chosen for a vocation. They mostly fail at that vocation. And it looks like they're going to fail. That is, they don't really become this other people. Because they're so often enticed by the other nations and the other power structures. And you think maybe, you know, how are they ever going to pull this off? But then, a thousand years after David, there comes one who takes the whole cause upon his shoulders and carries it all the way through the victory. Uh, This is Jesus. He is the one in whom all of the promises find their yes. And we say amen. He is Israel, as it were, in person. Completing the purposes of God for salvation. Uh, But let's back up now. That's a big picture. We're still thinking about Jesus of Nazareth. Um, Jesus 
of Nazareth grew up in a religious home. He was formed by the religious practices of his family and community. Jesus and his family, Joseph, Mary, he's got four brothers, he's got some sisters, don't know how many. Um, this is, they are observant Jews. They know Torah, they memorize Torah, they keep Torah. They, they practice a religious diet, they keep kosher. They have a text that they give heed to. They attend synagogue every Sabbath. They, uh, they observe the various yearly festivals. So Jesus um, grows up in a very devout religious home and community. To imagine Jesus was uh, spiritual but not religious, or worse yet, opposed to religion, is uh, a very absurd modern take. Um, that is an absurd, an absurdity that really arises in Western secularism. That Jesus was spiritual but not religious, which I don't Here, Here's the problem with spirituality. First of all, I'm not quite sure what it is. Uh, I think it's most, but, but what's really wrong is with spirituality, it has very little capacity to form you because you're still in charge of it. It's, it's just still perceived from itself. And so, you know, you go for a walk in the woods and call that spirituality. Look, I like walks in the woods. But, you know, or you, you light a candle and, and read a book. I like candles, I like books, but religion is submitting to something that comes from without. That, that, that you didn't invent. That you didn't just decide I want to do this. That is placed upon you. That is received. This is how Jesus grew up. Now, in His ministry, uh, Jesus taught His fellow Jews how to properly practice their religion. Uh, true religion is marked by justice, mercy, and humility, not religious pride or legalistic cruelty. So Jesus doesn't reject religion at all. Jesus reforms religion according to justice, mercy, and humility. Uh, Jesus was born probably around the year 6 B.C., which is confusing. Um, the calendar got off for a couple of reasons. There was no year zero that creates problems. But also, uh, they were confused that Augustus Caesar reigned for the first four years under the name Octavian. And that confused some people. But here's what we do know from the, from the biblical text. Is that Jesus is born while King Herod is reigning. And we know pretty verifiably that Herod died in 4 B.C. And so Jesus comes before the death of Herod, 5, maybe 6 B.C. Um, he almost certainly began his ministry about the year 28 A.D., making him about 30 or maybe like 32. Uh, between two, you know, we, we think of the flight to Egypt. 
Egypt and Herod's master are up when he's around the age of two. I know we conflate the shepherds and the magi in our Christmas services. That, I get that. That's nice. But there's probably a great distance between those events. So what happens to Jesus between 2 and 32? Um, between his very young childhood, as an infant really, and beginning his ministry. Well, Jesus didn't go to India and study uh, Buddhism. He didn't go to uh, Athens or Alexandria and study Greek philosophy. Jesus lived in Nazareth, being formed by the religious practices of his community. Uh, He worked in construction with his father and his brothers. We aren't told much about those 30 years Because there's not much to tell. He's living an ordinary human life. But there is that one story. I want to read this to you. This one story. Now every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up as usual for the festival. When the festival was ended... They started to return. The boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but his parents did not know it. Assuming that he was in the group of travelers, they went a day's journey. Then they started to look for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to search for him. After three days, They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, child, why have you treated us like this? Look, your father and I have been searching for you in great anxiety. He said to them, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I had to be about my father's business or in my father's house? I'm trying to say it either way. But they did not understand what he said to them. Then he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. His mother treasured or pondered all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and years and in divine and human faith. When Jesus was 10 or 11, uh, about, there was a Jewish uprising in Galilee that began in Sepphoris. Sepphoris is uh, five miles, I think, in miles. You can do the kilometer thing in your head if you can. A few kilometers away from Nazareth. Nazareth at that time was just a tiny, tiny, tiny village. Uh, Almost so small that, you know, it hardly shows up on the registers. Sepphoris, on the other hand, was a significant city. And there was a lot of building going on there. I I imagine that Jesus, uh, with his brothers and his father, probably engaged in construction in Sepphoris. They would live in in Nazareth, but they would often work in Sepphoris. Well, anyway, there was a Jewish uprising against the occupying Romans 
in separate, began in separate, and then spread back down. Well, when the Romans came and crushed it, part of what they did was they crucified 2,000 men lining the roads that lead to Sepphoris. Okay, that, that gives you something of the context of which, in which Jesus is growing up in. Imagine being you know, 10 years old and there's a revolution and it's crushed and these roads that you travel are now lined with crucified failed revolutionaries. Jesus is growing up in that kind of world. And, and this, this really shapes messianic expectations. When will this son of David come and be our warrior who will conquer the Philistines now called Romans? Who will be our, well they share the same name, our Yahshua, our Joshua. Who will drive out the Canaanites now called Romans out of our promised land. Jesus is growing up in that kind of milieu. Then at the age of 12, um, Jesus, as I think he'd probably done for many years, but this, this year something, he, he goes with the family to the festival of Pesach, Pascha, Passover. He's 12 though, that's kind of a, you're starting to cross into adolescence. The, the capacity to think maybe a bit deeper is now present. He goes to Jerusalem with his family. It's an extended family, you know. Most of Nazareth is related, and it's you know cousins and aunts and uncles and friends and neighbors, and they sort of travel as a group. And they go up to Jerusalem because you, you ascend up to Jerusalem. This is what they did every year, but something significant is going to happen this year. At some point. Now, Jerusalem at this time was a city of about, you know, 70, 100,000 people, it's quite big. But at Passover time, it would swell to over half a million. So it's a, you know, big, big city gathering. At some point, this 12 year old boy, he's a boy, 12 years old, somehow slips away and goes into the temple complex, begins to listen to the various teachers there, the Torah teachers, the scribes, priests. Levites, and he's listening and occasionally. Can you expand more on the suffering servant in Isaiah? I know that Messiah will be king, but we also see it looks like maybe. Well, I don't know that those are the questions he's asking. But he's asking questions. And he's not only asking questions, he's actually responding. So he, he comes across as a, a, a prodigy. That he's very good at this sort of conversation, this, this very rabbinic style of question and answer and back and forth. And Jesus is doing this and he does this for three days. You, you were talking about atonement theories. I remember the when I first, like 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 12 years ago, began to rethink some of how we understand the cross. And I was just then making a new friend, Brad Jerzak, who we just happened to be in 
here in Middle Earth together and took a little trip into Mordor, had a great time. Got rid of a ring or something like that. And, uh, but I just was meeting Brad. And one time I flew all the way from St. Joseph, Missouri in the middle of the U.S. up to Abbotsford, which is near Vancouver, British Columbia, and Canada, to spend three days doing nothing but discussing theology. And we just sat in his kitchen, more or less, for three days discussing theology. So I understand that. But I wasn't doing that when I was 12. But Jesus does that for three days when he's 12. Now, meantime, the, the, the family of Joseph and Mary, Mary and their other children and, and the cousins and aunts and uncles have already begun their journey back home. They don't notice that Jesus isn't there because, you know, he's 12, so he's with his cousins. He's, you know. They get a day's journey, and Mary, you know, it would be, this is like, this is home alone. You know, this is, she's on the plane, and finally she realized Jesus is not with, he's not with his cousins. He's not with any of his friends. He's just not in the caravan. And so, you know, great panic, and they rush back, Mary and Joseph. And they search for three days. You can just imagine the anxiety. All of the thoughts going through her head. What's happened? Has he been murdered, kidnapped? Someone has taken him and sold him into slavery in Egypt or something. Who knows? Finally, they go to the temple. I don't know if they're still looking for Jesus. Maybe they go to the temple to pray. I don't know. But they go to the temple. And there is Jesus. As if nothing really has <laughs> happened. And uh, he, there he is, you know, engaged in this three-day-long theological conversation with Torah scholars. And she says, "Child, why have you done this to us? We've been we've been tormented. We've been searching frantically everywhere. Why have you done this to us?" And you, you can, parents will understand that when you're anxious about a child and you don't know where they are, you fear the worst, and then you find that there's like. One second of joy that turns to anger immediately. This is what happens with So she sort of lashes out at Jesus. Um, because 12-year-old 12 12 year boys are not permitted to do that. You can't just go off on your own. But this isn't just any adolescent, though, is it? This is, this is the logos in adolescence. This is the eternal logos of God in adolescence. This is the word in boyhood. Oh, that's fascinating to think about. And strangely, Jesus is not particularly apologetic. His response is, See, it took you three days? Why didn't you come here first? I mean, where did you think I was going to be? I have to be in my father's house. I have to be... In my father's livelihood, my father's business, my father's trade. Obviously, he's not talking about Joseph. By the way, those are the first recorded words of Jesus in the Gospels. Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I had to be in my father's house? 
These words are not necessarily easy to accept or understand them. I don't think Mary really understood them. And this wouldn't be the last time that people found something that Jesus says difficult to accept or understand. Uh, This strange story about Jesus in boyhood, the Logos in adolescence, is really a story about losing Jesus and finding him again. Mary had Jesus. I mean, in the most literal sense, right? She conceived Jesus by the Holy Spirit in her womb. She carried Jesus for nine months. She gave birth to Jesus. She nursed Jesus. She raised him. She knew Jesus better than anyone. And then she lost Jesus. And for three agonizing days, she can't find him. But she does find him eventually. Seeking, you'll find. She does find him, but when she finds him, he's different. Now she has to rethink him a little bit. Because he doesn't respond as you would hope a 12-year-old boy that pulled this stunt would respond. He isn't apologetic. And she has to go home and ponder this in her heart. Forced to reevaluate what she thought she knew about Jesus. Years later, it kind of happened again. He goes home, you know, at 12, and he's okay. He's back in the groove of just being the eldest son. At 12, he's going to be more and more involved in his business. His other father's business, construction. Somewhere along the line, Joseph dies, and Joseph and Jesus now becomes really the head of the household. But at thirty, Jesus slips away one day. He goes out of Galilee into Judea to hear his cousin preach, John the Baptist, and Jesus joins in the public act of repentance that was the baptism of John. But after that, then slips off into the wilderness and is gone for 40 days and 40 nights. Eventually, he does come back to Nazareth just long enough to pack up stuff and move to Capernaum. Perry and I walk from Nazareth to Capernaum. It's like... I forgot the kilometers. I want to say it's like 68 kilometers, I think. And we'll, I think we're going to do that again next month, right? Or sometime soon. And um, Jesus relocates to Capernaum. And he begins his ministry now. He begins to preach. What does the family think of this? What does Mary and who are the names of his brothers? James, Judas. Simon, I've left out one. I think I might have it written down here somewhere. Well, it's whatever. There it is. James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and it says, and Mary. Uh, They hear about the crowds that are coming, and he's just so, and he didn't even have a hard time to eat. He's just all going down down to the village. There's miracles. He's preaching, gathering. The response of the family is that something has gone wrong. This is sometimes covered up, but it's in the text. They said, oh, she's out of his mind. That's what they said, out of his mind. 
Mentally unstable. And they stage an intervention. <laughs> See, Mary has lost Jesus again. He's gone. And they're not on board. And so they make the long, they travel now from Nazareth to Capernaum. Jesus is in a home, a house. The house exists to this day. It's like a, it's like a, a site archaeologically. We actually do know where the home of Simon Peter, or really his mother-in-law's home was in Capernaum. We actually know that site. It's rather remarkable. And there are so many people in there, they can't even get in. They just, they can't get in. They just, sorry, you know, the fire marshals is known. Nobody else is going in. And so they send message in. They said, hey, your mom and your brothers and all word with you. So of course, you know, Jesus says, oh, excuse me, my mom, I need to go talk to him. I'll be right back. No, Jesus says, my mom, my brothers, my sisters, who are my mom and my brother and my sisters? Those that hear the word of God and do it. That's, man. You just try that one with your mom and see how that goes over. And now Mary has to rethink him some more. Hmm. She lost him. He left Nazareth. She found him in Capernaum, but now has to rethink him. That was the second time that Mary lost Jesus. There would be a third time. She would lose him again for three days in Jerusalem. And when she finds him again, now it's the ultimate rethinking. Losing Jesus, finding Jesus, rethinking Jesus. I think that's pretty much the script of spiritual growth. Losing Jesus, or you can start with having Jesus. Having Jesus, losing Jesus, finding Jesus. Uh, but I've got to rethink it. Because when we lose Jesus and then find Him again... He's different, although actually he isn't changing. We are seeing more deeply into the logos, who is Jesus. And we have to rethink some things. This is, I think it's the only way to make spiritual progress. If, if we just, if we trust it. We have Jesus because, you know, as a child or at some point in our youth, we, we encounter Jesus. And then nothing ever changes for the next 40 years. How, how in the world is that growth? There's no growth at all. The pattern really does seem to be have Jesus, lose Jesus. And, and you're in that moment of anxiety because he's not in the group that we're traveling with. We're not trying to judge the group, but... I've had that experience. I've had that, that experience. I've been going with, and it's like, Jesus? I can't find him. Oh, no, I'm sure he's here. He's always with us. Okay, but I, I can't find him. And then you end up leaving the group. The group goes on. So the group keeps going. But you leave the group. There's, there, there can be, oh, Jesus around here somewhere. He's got to be. <laughs> But you had to leave the group and go search for him. Seek and you shall find. And you find him. There's a relief. Oh, I didn't lose Jesus. But, when, but in finding him again, he's different. 
I've had the experience of what feels like losing Jesus several times. In the 45 years that I have been deliberately, intentionally trying to follow Jesus. Um, it can be distressing, but it is the way of progress. I mean, I have my journey with Jesus starting in the Jesus movement. Charismatic renewal. Word of faith. And then a great rethink midway through life. And I have to try to... I begin to recognize, you know, there's a whole lot of varnish on my icon of Christ. There's just Western assumption, cultural values... Consumerism got some red, white, and blue varnish on it, and I have to start working on not deconstructing. That's way too violent. I mean, if if you discover a precious icon that's a thousand years old in an old, forgotten Russian monastery, you may want to bring it back to its original state, but you don't use a sledgehammer to do it. There may be brushes and solvents, but it's it's a very delicate process. And so I've had the experience of, of waking up in midlife and going, I, I I'm not seeing Jesus as I did 20 years ago. And I have to go looking for him and I find him again. I lose Jesus and I find him, but then I have to rethink him. To me, that's spiritual growth. And I think it has to be this way. I just think it has to. I, think, I don't think we just... Okay, we just, you know, slowly, steadily, year by year, incrementally, increasing our knowledge and understanding of Christ. That's a great theory. I don't think it works that way. I think it's punctuated with crisis moments. They get our attention. I mean, Mary is just traveling with the group. And it's kind of like, oh, everything is fine. And, you know, I got Jesus. And I'm Jesus' mom. All of that. And then there's that moment that is a crisis. Jesus is not here. Joseph, he's not here. We have to go back. We have to go find him. That's disconcerting. Because there, why? Why? Because there's this moment of fear that you never find him again. That he's like permanent. Maybe, maybe it was all just a fantasy. Maybe it was all a fallacy. Maybe it was all you know, a fairy tale. And you're afraid you'll never find him again. But seek and you'll find. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and it'll be given. But, you, but it's going to take. And it's usually a crisis moment that prompts that kind of energy in your life. To do that kind of searching. Then there is the other marriage. There's another Mary that's important in the whole gospel story. We've been talking about Mother Mary, the Virgin Mary, the Mother of the Mary of Jesus, however you want to say it. Uh, There's the other Mary. There's Mary Magdalene. Mary of Magdala. That Jesus sets free from seven demons. Seems about right. We all got our demons, probably seven, seven. Fairly accurate number. <laughs> Typical number. Jesus sets her free from her demons. She becomes a follower. 
I think she probably, it's, it's a little confusing in the text, but I think she probably belongs to that company of women who are welcome and, and support Jesus. We always cast her in our mind as a young woman because we kind of, you know, people like to play around with like a romantic thing between Jesus and Mary Magdalene. That's silly. I think probably she's an older woman. Which is why she doesn't go far in. You don't hear much about her once we get into the church. You don't really hear about her at all. I think she was probably, probably a widow that was successful and wealthy. Was in a stage of life where he was really beginning to contemplate things and becomes a follower and supporter of Jesus. But that's just me thinking. What we do know is that she was a very devoted disciple. She was at the cross. We know that, um, well, she, she is going to be the first human being. She'll always be known as the first human being to, to encounter the risen Christ. And she meets him in the garden of Joseph of Arimathea, where Jesus had been buried in a tomb. You know the story. But when she meets him, now she lost Jesus in the ultimate sense. I mean, she had been at the cross. She had seen him die. She had stuck with Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. So they take the body down and go nearby to Joseph's garden's wall and all of that. It's a lovely garden. And Jesus is, is very she, I mean, she had lost him in the ultimate sense. I mean, you see somebody die and see them buried. That's the ultimate loss. She's lost Jesus. She goes on Sunday to the tomb, not. Not to find the risen Christ. She goes to pay her final respects. They brought spices, you know. But we're already told that, that Nicodemus and Joseph had given a hundred pounds of spices. But she, she wants to do her part too. She's wealthy. She's bought spices. So she is participating with Joseph and with Nicodemus in giving Jesus a royal burial. Because they're saying, yes, we believe this was the Messiah. You all killed him, but he was the king, and we're going to give him a royal burial. She goes to pay her final respects. You know the story. Tomb is empty. More, even a further loss of Jesus, because now even the body is lost. I mean, now it's, I mean, how can you lose somebody worse than losing them in death? But it's happened. She's ultimately lost Jesus. There's the running back and forth of disciples and bewilderment. And finally, she's again alone in that space. And she turns around and she sees the gardener. That's what she thinks. She thinks she sees the gardener. Harry and I were in Florence a couple of years ago. And one of the, I think the, maybe the, my favorite piece of art I saw was not something famous. But it, it, it depicts, it's, it's Mary encountering Jesus in the garden on the first Easter. But Jesus is depicted as Mary perceives him as a gardener. So there's Jesus and he, he's got a hoe. He's got on this gardener's cap. He's even got like a blade of grass, you know, in his mouth. Because he's the gardener, she thinks. We get to call it a mistake. She, it was a case of mistaken identity. She thought he was the guard. I don't know. So it's a lovely mistake if it was a mistake. I like that. 
that Jesus is the gardener. Here's here's how G.K. Chesterton says it. On the third day, the friends of Christ coming at daybreak to the place found the grave empty and the stone rolled away. In varying ways, they realized the new wonder. The world had died in the night. What they were looking at was the first day of a new creation with a new heaven and a new earth. And in a semblance of a gardener, God walked again in the garden, not in the cool of the evening, but in the dawn. So, mistaking him as the gardener, Mary says, Oh, you know, if you've taken away his body, tell me. Tell me where you've laid the body and I'll go take the body. And Jesus, the gardener, says, Mary. Mary. Just calls her by name and that opens her eyes. Rabboni, teacher. She falls at his feet and begins to cling. And Jesus says, do not cling to me. For I have not ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. But I want to look at that word, that little phrase, Mary. Rabboni. She falls to the ground. Don't cling to me. This is a mysterious thing. Jesus tells Mary Magdalene she can't cling to him. Because soon he's going to ascend. Let's say it this way. Mary can't cling to the Jesus she's known because he's about to become ascendant. Not different. Not a different person. Not a different person. But a person who now must be known in a different way. I mean, she has known Jesus more or less like you and I would know another person. We see them when they're near us, when they visit us, when we travel with them, when we're in their home. And then when they're not in our proximity, we don't see them. That's how she's known Jesus, in that very conventional way, but that's about to change. It's interesting that those who met the risen Christ almost always failed to recognize him. Mary Magdalene thinks he's the gardener. The disciples on the Emmaus Road, which there are hints in it of who they are, with Cleopas and Clopas, I think it was Jesus' uncle and aunt. I think it's Uncle Clopas and aunt, I forgot her name, the wife of Clopas, Joanna. Is that right? I forgot. I have to look it up. I think this is Jesus' aunt and uncle. And they're depressed, you know, they're, oh, you know, they're, I mean, all, I mean, all their hopes, all their hopes for this is the one, this is Messiah, this is the one, and, he, and he's killed and buried, and now they're going home completely devastated, disillusioned, and it shows, and there's a stranger walks with them, they don't even notice the stranger at first, and, and they're just talking about, you know, what's happened. And the stranger says, excuse me, but uh, what are you talking about? Oh. You're the only one that's been in Jerusalem this weekend and don't know what happened? What that is? About Jesus of Nazareth. Oh, do tell. 
Well, you know, he, we, we were hoping that he was the one who would fulfill the promises and bring the kingdom of God. Uh, but, you know, our chief priests and, and, and uh, they rejected him and they, they crew, turned him over to the Romans and he was crucified and, and buried. And that was like three days ago. Oh, yeah. So, so you're saying to me that he couldn't have been the Messiah because he was killed. Well, yeah. You guys, you guys didn't read your Bible? And he gives him like a two-hour, it's a seven-mile walk, like a two-hour Bible that's taking him from Moses to the prophets and showing that suffering, even death, was always laid out as the trajectory. For the Messiah. That's why I wonder if he was 12 years old. He's like, excuse me, uh, Isaiah 53, suffering servant. What do y'all think about that? Is that Messiah? You mean Messiah is just not going to come with the king? He's going to. What do you think about that? So he takes that uncle through this study. They don't know him, they don't recognize him. He's a stranger. They get to Emmaus. This is where they live. And just, well, I'll be seeing you. I'm going on. No, no, you can't. Look what time it is. Come on in, please. Come in, come in. They come in. They prepare a meal. Always takes time. Jesus is just there. They don't recognize him. Then it comes time for the meal. And Jesus sort of takes over. He's not the host, but he is the host. He's not the host. Cleopas is the host. But he takes over. No, I'm the host. So he... Takes the bread, and he blesses the bread, and he breaks the bread, and then he offers it to them, and, oh, and their eyes are open. He vanishes. He's been very present with them. He's breaking bread. But physically, it's not an apparition, it's not a vision. It's, but now he's gone. But the bread remains, falls with an emphatic thumb upon the table. <clears throat> Because when they rushed back, they said, you know, no, no, we've seen him, he's alive. And uh, the bread. It was the bread and the bread. So Christ is with us in the sacrament of the bread. But they didn't recognize him at first. The disciples who had breakfast with Jesus, the seven disciples on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, remember that? It says, there's this strange phrase in there, none of them dared to ask him who he was. Because they knew he was Jesus. But that, that phrase, no one dared ask him who he was, implies that they knew who he was because of action and word, not because of appearance. Because at first they just, again, regarded him as a stranger. And then even in Galilee, it says they worshipped him, but some doubted. Oh, how could they doubt? Well, apparently there's a different appearance. It, see, Jesus doesn't so much come back from the dead. I mean, we use he can use that language, but that's not. We could be more uh, accurate in our language. It's more as if Jesus goes all the way through death and comes out on the other side, something no one else has ever done. Gandalf the Great falls down, you know, after his battle with the Belrog, and then he comes back as. Gandalf the White, and there's a little bit of confusion at first. I think Tolkien is probably drawing upon Jesus with that. Jesus' resurrection certainly was not in the same category as the resurrection of, the raising of Lazarus, who was four days dead, not just three, four days dead. Now Jesus goes all the way down into death. Well, that's how death is defeated. 
is death committed the following the folly of trying to swallow Jesus. But death cannot digest divinity. And so the great Orthodox hymn, Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death, and upon those in the tomb the stone. But they have to get to know him in a new way. The Christ that Mary Magdalene met in the garden and the Christ the two disciples met on the Emmaus road and the Christ that Saul of Tarsus met on the Damascus road is the Christ that's available to us. I have benefited from historical Jesus research. I've read all that stuff. I love Antigua. I love Richard Hayes. Even the heterodox guys like... John Dominique Croson and Marcus Moore. I appreciate their work. I don't agree with some of their conclusions, obviously. I'm orthodox. They're not. But I think they're nice guys. Um, but anyway, I, I love the historical Jesus research. I think it's beneficial to get Jesus in his time. Jesus and that. But just remember, that Jesus is ultimately inaccessible. You will never be able to travel back to A.D. 30 and walk with Jesus in the dusty hills of hell. But neither did Paul. It is, it is the Christ available to Mary in the garden and the aunt and uncle on the Emmaus road and Paul on the road to Damascus that is available to But once we begin to walk with him and journey with him and travel with him, um, over time, there'll be crisis moments when you feel like you've lost him. And there's a panic. Am I going to turn into a dumb, an agnostic, an atheist? Well, it doesn't have to be that way. Stay tied into the rich tradition of the church. When you can't pray, say your prayers. That's why prayer school matters. Because when you can't pray, you can only say your prayers. Carry through that. But keep seeking, keep looking. You'll find him. You'll find him again. But the whole reason Jesus has played hide and seek with you is to bring you further into, I guess we're in Narnia now. Jesus is, you know, Aslan, it's hide and seek. I mean, why does Jesus, why does Jesus run off and hide? Be cruel to you, no. They'll draw you deeper into Narnia. I know what you can do is just be so daft, so spiritually dull that you don't even know that he's no longer in the company. And just kind of keep saying the same old things, just doing what you've done, believe what you believe, and don't worry. Or you just, no, I'm really, I can't find him. Well, go looking. And what Jesus is going to do is give you enough hints to lead you deeper into this kingdom. And then you'll find him again. And it'll be delightful, but you'll go, ah, he's changed. Of course, he hasn't changed. Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the eternal logos of God. He is true divine impassibility. But that doesn't mean... See, it's like this. You ever think about the first people who floated this idea? Hear me out. I don't think the sun is moving. 
I think we are. <laughs> no, seriously. And, the, you know, depending on what time in history, which, you know, heretic, <laughs> burn them at the stake. Because what could be more obvious in the natural world than the sun rises in the east, travels across the sky, sets in the west, and it happens every day. Except none of it's true. It's a perception we have. And then we realize, oh, that's really not what's happening. Something else is happening. Jesus doesn't change. But our spiritual journey is such that we are like the revolution of the earth. And it makes it look like Jesus is in the the movement of change. Jesus isn't, but we're the one moving. So if you see Jesus changing, maybe, probably, that's not Jesus changing. I know it's not Jesus changing. What's probably happening is you you are recognizing your own spiritual journey occur. You're the one moving. But you're also moving deeper into truth. Now, we are here as pastors, leaders of various kind. So, there's always a temptation, I think, for leaders to always pretend that they've always got to figure it out. Because to, to rethink Jesus publicly is a risky move. It's what I did. And it was risky. And it, it cost me. It was the only... See, here's, here's the problem. If any of you are familiar, you know that I'm deeply ecumenical. I'm really... I could be any of the seven major streams. I could be Orthodox. I mean, big old Eastern Orthodox. I could be Roman Catholic. I could be Anglican. You know, I, I guess I am by default some kind of Protestant. I could be uh, Anabaptist. People think I am. I could be evangelical as long as it's not the American iteration at the moment. I could be, uh, I am charismatic. I could be anything. But here's one of the problems with the Roman Catholic Church. God bless them. I love them. But one of the problems is they have to maintain this fallacy that they never change. Because I think that's where their authority comes from, from being absolutely unchanging. They do change, but they can't ever admit it. And that's a, that's, a, that's a sticky place to be in. Well, I've played that out in a microcosm in my own life. Because when I told people I was changing, that my view of Jesus was changing. So, well, so you know, like, were teaching us wrong back then? I was just doing the best I could, but, you know, the journey's ongoing. Well, how do, how do we know that you're getting it right now? Well, I don't know that you do. <laughs> and so that level of honesty for leaders is often uncomfortable because we're afraid we're going to lose our followers. Well, what's the alternative? To pretend that Jesus is in the company when no one has seen him for days, months, years, decades. <laughs> I mean, at some point you have to pay the price to go looking for him. And then find him again. But realize that he appears different. Let's say it that way. He's not different. But we've gone on enough of a spiritual trip that, oh, to pursue, oh, I see Jesus. Oh, I see Jesus different now. He hasn't changed, but I, I have a new angle, a new perspective. And now I have to change in response to 
We're going to take a break here in a little bit, but let's let's just stop right there and, and see if you want to question me on something. Raise a question.